Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode. That's where you're going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'm joined today by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. This week, we'll discuss what the Israel-Hamas war has revealed about the media and the miracle, question mark, weight loss drug Ozempic. But first, I want to go to Washington, D.C., Actually, I was in Washington, D.C. last week, and I lost count of the number of people who asked if I was going there to submit my application to be the Speaker of the House. If you have not been paying attention, the United States House of Representatives is now going on three weeks without a Speaker of the House. This happened because, one— the Republican Party had a relative, n- relatively narrow majority in the United States House. And one of the concessions that Kevin McCarthy, the most recent spe- elected Speaker of the House, had to give up over 15 rounds of voting for him to become the Speaker was that it only took one member of the House to initiate what is called a motion to vacate the chair – which is basically a motion, if it gets a majority vote, to toss the Speaker of the House out. Uh, Matt Gates, a congressman from Florida, uh, invoked that measure uh, about three weeks ago. <clears throat> Kevin McCarthy, uh, with eight Republicans joining the Democrats, uh, was the motion was passed and the chair was vacated. Currently, there is a Speaker pro tem. As a gentleman named uh, Patrick McHenry, which is just a great name. The man does have fantastic taste in bow ties uh, from North Carolina, uh, who is operating as a stand-in to allow some function of the House of Representatives. But for three weeks now, nobody has been empowered with the power and the role and responsibility that the Speaker of the House is supposed to have in that period of time. Uh, The Republicans have put forward a couple different people for the role of speaker. The first put forward was Steve Scalise, congressman from Louisiana. He was unable to get the 217 votes he needed to become speaker. Then it was Jim Jordan, congressman from Ohio, uh, most famous for refusing to wear his suit jacket. He also was unable to get the 217 votes. And the most recent news is there are nine, nine people who have filed, if there's a filing, I don't think there actually is, but have notified the Republican conference that they intend to run for speaker. Um, Again, this is not a political analysis podcast, and I want to turn our attention really to the roles and responsibilities of the House, what this says about the ability of one of our important institutions of government to operate more so than the the political analysis. Uh, but it, it this is a a problem for 
uh, well, one, going back to what I was saying of the nine, there isn't a single one of them that looks on paper like they can get the requisite number of votes to become speaker. There has been talk of empowering Patrick McHenry, uh, giving him some emergency powers in a very Palpatine-like way uh, to make the speaker pro tem more powerful because they can't agree to elect one. Um, This also is a bit of a violation of historical precedent. Typically, the way that the partisan caucuses work is they vote in conference and whoever they put forward is the speaker designee. And everybody in the party will vote for that person. Uh, We saw this not happen a lot when Kevin McCarthy first became the Speaker of the House back in January. So that is the state of play. Like I said, we're, you know, not going to focus as much on the what does this mean for the Republicans and the Democrats? But I want to put the question out there. What does this mean about... What does this say about our system of government right now that, you know, again, one of the – this is the person who's third in line for the presidency, uh, pretty important. Really, no legislation moves in the House without a speaker, and all of this seemed to be just perfectly in line with our petty and – often unimportant political battles. And then a war breaks out in the Middle East, and there actually are some relatively important things that you would probably want a Speaker of the House and a House of Representatives to deal with, and they are kind of left unable to do so. So, Dan, what does this say about our system of government and our institutions right now? So our system of government is fine. We have a House of Representatives that has duly elective representatives. What we have is a non-functioning party. Um, The political parties are not part of our system of government, although they have, you know, of course. You've certainly used our system of government to ensconce themselves. Oh, yeah. Uh, And they've they've operated within it. Um, And in fact, I think that there's a very good case to be made that – a robust party system is something that can help the government focus, uh, uh, can help coalitions form, can help uh, government function better and not worse. Um, Dylan and I, I think this was last year, we were in the great state of Virginia and there was a panel uh, at a conference put on by the Philadelphia Society. And the panel was basically about this history it was two historians. Uh, James Patterson was one of them. I believe David Azarod from Hillsdale College was the other right. member of the panel. And they talked about the importance of parties to the American system of government, and in particular, the importance of strong parties. And they talked about of all of the problems we're currently experiencing in governance at that point, not as grievous as they are now, could be resolved or, or could be helped with stronger parties. And it was a wonderful presentation. I learned a lot about American history. And then an older gentleman got up uh, to ask a question. And he first introduced himself with his credentials. And he had been involved in every aspect of Republican Party politics in the state of Virginia imaginable. 
had been on boards, had headed committees, had headed organizations, had been on the fundraising end, had been on the candidate's end. And then he proceeded to thank both of the gentlemen who gave the talk for a wonderfully historically illuminating talk and told them all of the obstacles there are to going back to that time. Um, and he talked about how that the Republican Party really doesn't exist, that we think of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party as these monolithic organizations, but they don't, in fact, exist. There are organizations of Republicans in the House of Representatives. There are organizations like the college Republicans. There are county and state level parties all the way on down. There's a, a Women's Republican League, I am sure. There are all of these different organizations. None of them are accountable to each other, which makes party discipline very, very hard. And when you have a very, very narrow majority, party discipline is very, very important. And what we have with what folks are calling in the press the Gates 8, and I love this moniker, is just like, this is what journalists were born to do. We're going to talk about we're going to talk about problems with journalism later on in this podcast, but coinage is like the Gates 8 is journalism at its best. If it turns into some massive scandal too, would it just then be uh, Gatesgate? Because we, we take the Watergate thing, we just attach gate to the end of it. So Gatesgate would be the, uh, the inevitable scandal that is going to come at some point in all of this. One could hope, but the reality of it is there is no Republican majority without the Gates 8. It does not exist. And we are seeing that now. Um, we are seeing a party that... Uh, you know, there are two ways to govern. One is to govern through party discipline, governing your own party and using your majority to leverage your agenda. The other is to reach across the aisle and to govern in coalition with others. Speaker McCarthy had the opportunity to make an offer to the Democrats in the House to get some votes to retain his speakership. He refused to make such an offer. And I think he was probably wise in refusing that offer because the political reality is, is that a Republican speaker reliant on votes from the Democratic Party is poisonous to the Republican Party as currently configured. And it is just a non-starter. So right now you have a situation where unless we're looking at a new cycle of elections, I don't think you have a way forward. I think you have at this point poisoned relationships in the party. Not – and these and these aren't at this point even ideological. A lot of this is personal and we have seen a lot of back and forth between Republican members of the House, intensely critical of each other, uh, maligning each other's character, this sort of thing, that I'm not sure you find a way to de-escalate from. I want to make two quick points uh, before going over to you, Dylan. But the the first one is, is a political point, that there is an irony um, in what I think you said about McCarthy asking for Democrat votes is correct. Um, Matt Gates needed Democrat votes in order to get McCarthy kicked out. So like the, the the whole thing to me is kind of a wash on all of that because nothing can or has happened without 
the Democrats being involved sometimes. So like this idea of it being like a party purity thing is just a joke to me. Uh, but I think the, for me, the more important one is a kind of a system question. I, I am not desirous. Uh, well, I think there certainly are merits to a parliamentary system of government. Um, I am quite a fan of the system of government that the founding fathers set up in the United States. But I do think one of the things that is vexatious is we wrote into the governing document when the elections would happen. And I think we would benefit right now from the ability to call an election when you get to the point – we've actually seen this in Israel over the course of the last number of years – the inability to form a stable coalition government in that country led to a bunch of successive elections. Now, the I guess the pushback on my point there is it didn't really settle a whole lot of things in Israel, but at least you have the opportunity and the ability to not just have to wait until November of next year for this whole thing to be sorted out, which raises the question of is there going to be no Speaker of the House, which is, of course, while elected by a majority of a single party in the House, not really a partisan-oriented political role. It is – there is a lot – involved in that job, but it is moving legislation, scheduling votes. Uh, it has become more partisan and political over time as a lot of things have. But I think we would really benefit from the ability right now to say, we just can't quite figure this out. There's no solution that's presenting itself. So we call another election and let the American people settle it by saying, we want to send a whole lot more of one party or the other to Washington, and then they can figure it out from there. Oh, this is great. So I think I disagree with both of you. Uh, uh, not not entirely. I think you make you both make good points, but uh, I mean, I have an opinion. You can probably guess what it is uh, ahead of time. Um, I no think, elections. Uh, does, it, does it involve dog catchers? It involves the Constitution. The Constitution says uh, we should only have one representative for every thirty thousand people, and right now Congress is unconstitutionally composed, um, and. One of the things you see is that makes uh, not necessarily well, I, yeah, makes the political party stronger, and that is a problem. So um, I have the opposite opinion of Dan in the sense I get the idea of we want party discipline and all that, but you could be forming coalitions based on local issues, based on the needs of the country. And speaking of the needs of the country, uh, the, Gates's vote was motivated by McCarthy passing a 48-day extension. Uh, to keep the government running while they try to work out uh, all sorts of issues regarding Ukraine funding, as far as foreign policy, but also a lot of domestic issues of programs. How do we keep them funded? Um, and he just kicked the can down the road, 48 days. We already ate up like 18 to 20 of those days with them squabbling over who's going to be the next speaker. Um, that is going to be the first thing they're going to have to do. And they're probably not going to pass that without Democrat votes. They have to. So whoever they pick is going to have to be able to reach across party lines um, in Congress. Uh, the caucuses are actually, despite being a Republican caucus or whatever, they're not party restrictive. So Bernie Sanders, before he you know declared or you know, identified as a Democrat to run for president, uh, was always an independent, a socialist, and yet he caucused with the Democrats. Um, the caucuses and the parties don't have to be the same thing. We should have strong caucuses, perhaps, um, but they should also be caucuses where people can come together uh, depending on whatever issue best serves their constituents. Um, and in this case, we need a Speaker of the House that represents a majority of Americans 
needs. Uh, and we can't get that because instead we have this sort of national partisan polarization governing everything. We have a group of people within one party uh, that disagrees with the other group about how best to win and beat their opponents. Um, and they, they're not arguing about really how best to govern. <laughs> Half of these people don't know how to govern. Jim Jordan had zero bills that he authored has been passed. For however long he's been in Congress, this man has literally the, the worst CV you could imagine for Speaker of the House. I mean, he just he's demonstrated none of the expected experience and skills that you would want for somebody in this position. Um, so, I mean, I don't have like a happy, easy fix other than uh, we should actually pay attention to something we've been neglecting for about 100 years in the Constitution, which is that Currently, uh, our representatives uh, and our districts are way too large, and something needs to be done about this. I have my own opinions. I've already mentioned that. We can put my essay on the show notes again if we really want. Um, but something needs to be done about this. And I, I think this is not that this is the only cause, but this is certainly related to that, uh, that instead of pushing local issues up, which you can find a lot more cooperation across party lines and other sorts of commitments. We are pushing national issues down. Uh, when you do that, it becomes all about winning and losing and my team versus your team and red versus blue. Um, and you end up with this absolute gridlock. As Dan said, the Republican Party is not a party, and quite literally so at this point. It is two parties under the same banner that cannot agree with each other. Um, and and it's a mess, and it's a mess not just, you know, it's something to laugh at, although it can be laughable at times, um, and something to observe, but it's something that really, really matters for Americans. Whatever you think of various government programs, they need to be properly funded before we debate whether or not we're going to continue them or cut them back or expand them or whatever the case may be. And so this is just like basic functioning of Congress that is obstructed by the situation that we're in. I agree with a lot of that. Um, but there's one specific piece that I disagree with. So I, I, I agree with your prescription. The, the idea that we are locked in to 435 members of the House of Representatives, mostly because the fire marshal of the United States Capitol says you can't fit that many more any more people into the House chamber, uh, just seems completely ridiculous to me, especially considering advances in technology and other ways that people could go about voting. I don't know what the exact right number of members of the House of Representatives is or should be, but you know, quite quite possibly at least double, if not more, the number of people who are currently in the House. I think there would be a whole lot of benefits to that. You know, the idea that uh, somebody representing hundreds of thousands of people is in any way going to meaningfully be a representative of that group of people, it just seems very thin and unlikely to me. The larger number of people that you represent, the less likely you are going to be able to actually meet and know any of the people that you're supposed to be representing their interests in the House of Representatives. So I, I agree with the prescription part of it. What I disagree with is I think the political parties have gotten more important in many ways, but I vehemently disagree that they've gotten stronger. They have gotten much, 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 much weaker. And I think you can point to a number of things for this, but probably the biggest culprit of it is the McCain-Feingold campaign finance reform legislation. Go back and watch Mitch McConnell's speech on the floor of the United States Senate. He was prescient and absolutely correct in pointing out that what this was going to accomplish was not 
getting money out of politics. It was going to get money out of the parties. And money was the biggest tool for party discipline that the political parties had. You cut off from the money people who are backbenchers and rabble-rousers when they start making trouble. The problem now, and we'll get into media in a little bit when we'll talk about uh, the the Israel and Hamas war and what that's telling us about the media. But there are people who have been able to quantify their hit on Fox News or their hit on MSNBC is worth X number of small dollar donations. And while I am in favor of people being involved in their government in the ways that are prescribed within the Constitution, the small dollar donor thing is a problem uh, because it is more of a form of you know expressing dopamine hits than it is – I think, an interest in the long-term interests of the party. And you want the political parties, to the extent they are going to exist, to be concerned about their long-term interests, not their short-term interests. And I don't think we are seeing a whole lot of that now. So I think the parties have gotten much, 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 much weaker. And that weakness, I think, has bred a lot of the hyper-partisanship that we see uh, because you know that ability to moderate a caucus like that allows whatever partisanship does exist to move up and down between the actual chamber of government and the people themselves. And again, there are a whole lot of other complicating things here. Gerrymandering absolutely has something to do with it. Another reason I'm for expanding the size of the House is because you would, I think, take care of a lot of the problems created by uh, gerrymandering. But I, I think this is – uh, indicative of the problem of the weakness of political parties right now, not a problem of their their strength. Although they have certainly gotten more important, but important and weak is not a good combination. There's a very – there's two sets of logic. <clears throat> One set of logic, there's a different logic to winning elections, which to win an election, you need half of the votes plus one. Um and that's all that matters. To govern is something very different. Um, you need more than that. You need a broader consensus than that. Um, if you look, Adam Smith, you know, people always remember the man of system. But there is also, in contrast to the man of system, there's offered the man of public spirit. And one of the characteristics of what Smith talks about in the man of public spirit is that the man of public spirit seeks to represent all of his constituents, all of those he's trying to represent, including the folks that did not vote for him. Um, and that is part of the difference with governance. So one way, I mean, you could see, you could see a couple of ways forward through this deadlock. Some is some sort of constitutional reform one would be a legislative sort of repeal McCain fine gold. Another could be legislative in terms of, you know, deal with jury uh, with uh, with gerrymandering at a local level. The other is for a parties to realize that part of what governing in the 21st century is going to require is broad majorities, so you can exercise party discipline in other ways. If the Republican caucus was not a razor-thin majority, but rather a, a robust majority 
Um, as we have seen throughout American history in different times and different places, this is not, um, you know, is a difficult job, certainly, but not impossible. But if you put together a broad enough majority, you can simply expel members that prove an obstacle to governance and unity. You can't do that in this case. In this case, like, these folks are part of your, you know, albeit only on paper existing majority, um, they're part of it. So, and you know, I was thinking when we were preparing for this about Paul Henry, who used to represent our district here in Grand Rapids. And one of the interesting things about Henry, Henry's got an interesting history because he was a professor at Calvin College after Watergate, Republican Party is decimated throughout the nation, decimated in Kent County. This was a, a Republican Party stronghold at the time. You had uh, a Democrat take what was former Congressman Jerry Ford's seat in the wake of Watergate um, at the time. And Paul Henry was basically the Kent County Republican came to him hat in hand and said, we need a fresh face. We need somebody to do something different here. Uh, he proceeded to retake that seat and increase his electoral majority every year. This meant that his last election, uh, shortly before he uh, tragically died away from brain, died from uh, passed away from brain cancer, it was something. It was a, a sixty-plus majority vote in the district. Building these sorts of coalitions is possible. It's going to look very different, but that's another potential alternative that is a way that with our existing sort of structural legal challenges with gerrymandering, with these sorts of things, if you had a party dedicated to that proposition of producing large majorities and improving the quality of governance, you know, that's an initiative that can be seized by either of the parties at this point. Do either of you think that this says anything you know, here at Acton we're concerned about the promotion of a free and virtuous society? Civic virtue is one of those forms of virtue. Do you think this is in any way representative of a decline in civic virtue? Uh, well, I mean, I don't see a lot of civic virtue when I look at Congress. Um, uh, I think the the incentives are not in place to reward it. Now, to be fair, um, I was just reading Federalist 51 uh, this morning, um, and our government is actually designed not to need a ton of virtue. Um, rather, ambition should be made to check ambition, although that comment uh, was about between branches of the government, not necessarily within um, but Do you think it is one of the bigger problems the founders did not envision the idea that Congress would at some point no longer be a jealous, je a jealous guardian of its own power and prerogative. Yeah, I mean, and that you know, there's a lot of steps that got us here. Um, the other is, is as you mentioned, the funding. So when someone knows the cameras are always on, um, so this is another thing. As I said, it's not one, just one cause. Um, the cameras are always on in Congress. There's always C-SPAN, and then there's, you know, you can get your interview on Fox News or on MSNBC or whatever. If you know you're going to be rewarded with money, like, yeah, it's campaign money, but it's the money that keeps you in your job. I mean, any any public choice theorist will tell you, uh, ultimately, like anybody in any economy, politicians are going to want to keep their job. And so they're going to do what they can to keep getting paid um, in any way that they do get paid. Um, and so... 
one thing would be to let's shut off the cameras. Another thing would be to let's go back on some of that campaign financing, uh, you know, changes. Um, again, I think it actually demonstrates my point, although not to to necessarily disagree with you, but to show that I think I think maybe we, we are closer in agreement than, than uh, we said, although maybe strong is the wrong word. I think important uh, kind of captures that in terms of the parties. But I think people locally should be able to vote for more locally interested people, right? And so when you can just throw money around at anybody who like, that guy's on my team, yay. And again, it's more, it's it's the national concerns are eating up the local funding um, instead of the other way around. Um, one way you could do it is we could build a bigger Congress. They could all legislate from FedEx field, or you could just have a, a, a series why would, of why would we want to make them suffer by putting them at FedEx Field? That's I mean, I think a lot of people would want to make Congress suffer for a variety of which, reasons. Which but. Which, uh, <laughs> which which part of uh, which uh, caucus uh, sits under the pipeline where it leaks raw sewage onto you? I and mean, that's that is a thing that happened at FedEx Field. Look it up. You know, I I expect there would be uh, some movement in terms of infrastructure bills uh, and reform. <laughs> it uh, will finally actually be infrastructure yeah. week. Um, but the other way is you just have you have local bodies represent or elected representatives. Those people elect the next level up, and so on. Uh, but I don't want to get into that again. Um, so the other side, as far as virtue goes, uh, however, um, you know I don't I don't see a lot of that civic virtue. But there's also a problem of knowledge. So another reason, not only do we have these structural changes to our constitution, whether you know, actual amendments or just things like, well, we're going to we're going to change how campaigning works. That's still in the general sense, a constitutional issue, even if it doesn't relate to the paper document of the Constitution. Think, for example, of the British Constitution, which there is no written document, but they still have a constitution. It's what makes up their society um, and how it works. Right. Um, And there's a constitutional problem uh, with the structure of things and that is unfortunately fed by a a just dearth of basic knowledge of how our government's supposed to work. So a lack of knowledge of our proper constitution is feeding into this distorted version of it. So a lot of people, if they ever have, uh, have forgotten what the constitution says. I doubt a lot of Americans even read it. You know, they, there's all kinds of jokes you can find uh, about people, you know, showing how when you, if you're an immigrant and you become an American citizen, uh, you immediately are one of the most informed Americans <laughs> in the country because the average American is not required to do any of that, uh, despite having, you know, 12 years of mandatory schooling. Um, and so there's a big, big failure of some of the really the basic function. If you look at um the states that early on mandated education, like in the Northwest Territory, we live here in the Midwest. Um, part of that was for civic education for the purpose of civic virtue. And instead, we're, you know, spending way too much time on trying to teach kids broken online platforms that are going to be outmoded in five years and um, random progressive, uh, you know, social justice points and you know and on the the opposite side you have people wanting no we want our our school to reflect our values i get it values are important (laughs) um but there should be some prioritizing of well wait what is school supposed to do i think reading writing math and then civic virtue and you know civic participation are should probably be the highest on the list that's what they were created to be um and so we have this big big knowledge educational problem that's feeding into the the problem with civic virtue as well you remind me of a great quote from uh nat glazer about how at some point in the 1970s 
major cities stopped doing the things that they know how to do, like you know, pick up the trash, and started trying to do things that no one knows how to do, like end poverty. And that I think you see here trickling down into the school systems where they have largely, when you look at some of the educational results, especially in major cities, like I just saw some numbers for the city of Chicago over the weekend, just the lack of almost anyone being able to do math and English at grade level, um, they have stopped doing the things that they knew how to do, which was teach reading, writing, arithmetic, and the way our system, uh, our country and our system of government functions in favor of doing the things that no one knows how to do, which I remember from Karen Lewis, the president of the Chicago Teachers Union at one point in time, that any time any of the problems and instruction at the Chicago public school system would come up, would always say, like, the only way that we're ever going to get those numbers where we need to is by ending poverty. It's like, well, uh, got bad news then. I don't think we're ever getting, again, considering that poverty is a comparative thing, uh, we're never going to get past the idea there are going to be people with less among us. But because the schools have gotten so far away from doing the things that they, A, need to do, and B, knew how to do in favor of doing things that no one knows how to do, we end up with problems like the one I think you were describing. And the reality of it is, is things even out. <laughs> that eventually what happens is if a problem is a big enough, long enough, persistent problem, it gets, it gets dealt with. We see this around the country with school choice legislation that for many years was stalled. All of a sudden, with all of the sort of measures put in to combat the, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, many of which were weaponized by teachers unions to their own advantage, you now have. in Even the state of Illinois, I was reading, is considering... They have. They're considering killing it. Um, there, uh, there's a desperate attempt to save the only real school choice program that exists in Illinois right now. Yeah. So you have you have these opportunities that happen, and one of the things not to lose track of is like we are the most well governed society of over 300 million people that exists in the world. Um, I would take the challenges of American democracy over the challenges of Indian democracy any day of the week. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, 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 there's reason for hope. And part of the ridiculousness that happens is because we are in such a position as to allow it to happen, that there is enough slack in everyone's sort of everyday lives that, you know, we've got low unemployment, inflation is, you know, been steadily reducing. We're seeing a lot of great things happen in America. And uh, one of the unfortunate side effects of that is that the circus can come to town uh, during those times when things overall in society are functioning well. This would be a good opportunity to move to our second topic and one of those kinds of events that perhaps becomes clarifying because of its seriousness, uh, which we've talked about the last couple of weeks in the uh, Israel-Hamas war that is still ongoing. I wanted to talk about a specific incident in that and what it says about the way the media 
has been handling this situation. On uh, October 17, there was an explosion in Gaza City near the El Ali Arab Hospital. It was almost immediately with the Gaza Health Ministry being the source for this. Uh, it was said to be an Israeli airstrike and that 500 people were dead. And over the course of about 24 to 48 hours, we discovered that, one, the missile that struck the hospital did not actually strike the hospital, struck the parking lot in front of the hospital. There were a few people killed, but I believe not even in double digits, total people that were killed by this, let alone 500. And uh, we have what looks to be solid evidence at this point that it was a missile fired by uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is another terrorist organization based in Gaza. Uh, they are widely reputed to be kind of the JV squad, to borrow a phrase from a former president, at least compared to entities like Hamas or Hezbollah. Um, the quality of their weaponry uh, is a little bit lacking. So the idea that a missile fired from Gaza towards Israel falls short is a story that we have seen many times before. Uh, as one should remember, Israel faced pretty regular bombardment from Gaza with missiles, usually launched by Hamas, but occasionally launched by Palestinian Islamic Jihad as well. Most of them intercepted by the Iron Dome technology we've talked about before. But the interesting thing about this is if you watched the media coverage of this unfold in real time, boy, a lot of people ended up with egg on their face because you had a lot of major media outlets reporting immediately the story from the Gaza health ministry that it was an Israeli airstrike on the hospital, 500 people believed dead. And then to the credit of most of those media outlets, they did begin the process of walking all of that back in 24 to 48 hours after we got daybreak over in, uh, in Gaza, that we could see that it was the parking lot. It was not the hospital itself. The hospital was still standing. Um, it really did ruin the interior of a van that was in the parking lot. Um, there were people who were dead, and that is awful, and that is tragic. Uh, but it was not the story that was initially reported. And you had a lot of people, though, clinging to that initial report and seemingly still clinging to it now. I'm thinking in particular of Rashida Tlaib, who is a congresswoman from the Detroit area, who, to the best of my knowledge at this point, has not taken back the um, her repetition of that story that it was an Israeli airstrike. So Dylan, you were the one who had brought this up. What do you think is the significance of what we saw here and what it says about the way events unfold in the world and they are covered by the people whose job is to document them? Yeah, so we, we mentioned some, some good examples of traditional journalism as in the Gates 8 I would add the Insidious Six uh, to that, um, but uh, it's a Spider-Man reference for those who don't know. Um, oh, it's Sinister Six. Well, now look at me, egg on my face as well. Um, all right, 
the the problem here is we have traditional media struggling for quite some time to adapt to digital media and even more so probably since the founding of you know of Twitter um, and the the widespread use of camera phones um, struggling to to deal with citizen provided media um, and especially in cases you know crises like this um, that is where people go. And I, I mean, I'm one of them. When something breaks out, I click on the, the trend on Twitter and I see what people are posting. Now, I am aware that a good amount of that will be fake. Um, you know, in the, the when the Ukraine war broke out, there was this whole thing about um, the ghost of Kiev, which was supposed to be this amazing, you know, Red Baron-esque fighter pilot who was shooting down Russian jets. It was a video game. That's what it was. And like the Ukrainian, uh, you know, uh, one of their media ministries like was retweeting this, right? Um, so similarly, we see U.S. representatives uh, like Re- Representative Tlaib uh, repeating this, retweeting it, um, and not verifying it. Whose job is it to do independent verification? It is the traditional media. This is their competitive advantage, and it is their public service. And they largely failed in this very, very important instance. Uh, you know, first of all, there's the severity of, uh, you know, was a hospital blown up? You know, I, were 500 lives lost? I mean, th- these are details that absolutely just on their own deserve that independent, you know, verification. But this ruined uh, President Biden's uh, objective of traveling to the Mideast at the time to meet with uh, King, uh, uh, the King of Jordan and the um, Prime Minister of Israel and uh, the leader of the PLO, uh, which governs the Palestinians in the in the West Bank, to try to negotiate a de-escalation of the violence in some kind of resolution. Um, and instead, Hamas basically won. Uh, they fed some propaganda uh, out to the world through Twitter. And because there are real things to be concerned about, there's, you know, daily um, tragedies coming out about Palestinian civilians, uh, whether being put in harm's way by Hamas or being just incidentally um, injured or murdered by bombs falling on them from Israel. Uh, most recently, the Church of St. Porfirios. Uh, the church itself is still standing, but uh, the hall where many were sheltering was hit. About 17 people died, including rep- relatives of our, our former representative, Justin Amash, here. So there's there's real concern, but that is all the more reason why we need traditional media to show us what is really happening instead of just being so bought and sold for a narrative they want to craft that they will grab anything and craft it into that and they won't care about the facts and they won't care about the truth of it and it you know it's not something that is a surprise i'm sure to many listeners there's probably a lot of mainstream media skeptic listeners to this podcast um but i tend to actually be one of their defenders that i think and i still am in my opinion defending them in the sense of i think they have a very vital and important role to play um but this is an instance where they they just absolutely failed that you know to to undermine the you know potential peace process to uh really stoke anti-Semitism through saying, you know, Israel bombed a hospital. They didn't target and bomb a hospital. It didn't happen. Um, And just all these other sort of results that come from this. 
hugely irresponsible. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, he's not everyone's favorite. In fact, he seems to be very few people's favorite. But uh, Nate Silver, formerly of 538 uh, founder, had actually a really great article on his Substack talking about how easy it is to get breaking news wrong. So it was a very sympathetic uh, account of here's what it looks like on the inside. Uh, he has been a part of that to, to some degree. And he, in fact, formerly worked at The New York Times um, doing politics uh, data and that sort of thing. Um, but he also said, but you need to admit it when you get it wrong. And, uh, you know, the New York Times, yeah, they walked back, they they revised their headline, yeah. but there hasn't been like a big retraction. There hasn't been like this big, like, we we really got this wrong. You know, like there is a news story now that because of the misreporting of the New York Times and other outlets, uh, a prospect for reducing the violence that is horrifying people around the world has been, has completely fallen apart. That's a news story, right? A breakdown of peace negotiations due to misreporting, and yet it's not being reported, uh, you know, understandably, by these same news outlets. Yeah, my point is largely the same as Nate Silver's, which is it is absolutely understandable that media outlets are going to get things wrong. They are organizations, they are institutions, they are entities that are populated by human beings and human beings are fallible and they are going to get things wrong. Uh, we don't even need to get into you know, the greater critique that I have and that some others have about this veneer of objective journalism that has existed in the United States, primarily in United States media for around 100 years that is just problematic as a concept. People bring their own biases with them into the reporting that they do. This is why I've said for a long time that I think really good opinion journalism is better in many cases than a lot of the supposedly objective journalism you get because at least from the really good opinion journalism, the person's disclosing to me up front, here's who I am, here's how I see the world, and here are my priors. And then I can take that into consideration when reading the rest of the piece. But you have to be somewhat of a a really well-educated media consumer knowing from a lot of these outlets like, okay, here's likely the biases and the priors of the journalists who form the New York Times versus the New York Post, where they're going to be coming from and taking all that new accountability uh, into account. The unwillingness to just clearly admit when they get things wrong and not do the stealth Headed, editing of the headline kind of thing. And this is one of those areas where I think the internet has created a lot of problems because you can go in and you can under the radar edit things that people can find out if they want to look. You can look at different versions. You can look at the internet archive to see where things were changed and what was changed. But not having to print some kind of a corrections or retractions piece in a newspaper has really turned out to not be good for those institutions because they just think, ah, we can just go in and we can edit the headline and everything is going to be fine. No, you're going to break a lot of public trust when you do that kind of thing, which leads me to the only one other point that I want to make here. And this is where I really do have some sense of opprobrium for places like the New York Times. To take that original claim that an Israeli airstrike hit a hospital in Gaza City and killed 500 people, which was offered up as best as I can tell within 30 minutes, an hour of the event actually happening, the source of that quote-unquote information was the Gaza Health Ministry. The government in Gaza is Hamas. 
They were elected 17 years ago, very narrowly, unsurprisingly for a terrorist organization. They have not bothered to hold another election. So I am sympathetic to the people who say that this does not represent just because they were once the elected representative government of Gaza does not mean 17 years later that is still representative of the opinion. I have no sense of what the actual opinion of of citizens within Gaza is about Hamas. However, the New York Times should know that when you hear the Gaza Health Ministry saying this, it's Hamas who is saying it. Quite literally, the people who just murdered 1,400 Israelis in Israel. Maybe take that with a little grain of salt. Uh, That's the first failure here. But the unwillingness to clearly correct the record to say, we got it wrong. Here's how we got it wrong. Here's what we've learned since. I think would make people a lot more sympathetic to the Nate Silver kind of take on all of this. But it's that owning up to it that's not happening that I think is only continuing to just further undermine people's faith and trust in the media at all. Lord Acton said a lot of things best, and he said this best, uh, you know, common report and outward seeming are poor substitutes for the truth, and the, the, initiated, the, the initiated know it. Um, what you have, you know, oftentimes you'll hear journalists laudatorily refer to what they're doing as the first draft of history. Well, there's another way to look at that is that it's the first draft of history. Like, first drafts can be rough. And the reality of it is, is journalism and has historically been you are passing along things that people say to you. You are now a good journalist. We'll talk to experts. We'll talk to people in a position to know. We'll be aware of those people's biases and perspectives that the angles they might be trying to work. And we'll try their best to talk to enough people to sort of triangulate those sort of things. Now, that's a difficult job. And I'm very sympathetic to the problems of that job. We ask of journalists a lot. We ask them to be experts in everything because in order to evaluate these claims and triangulate the expertise of experts – you kind of have to be an expert yourself. Um, this leads to sort of the Gelman amnesia effect, as Michael Crichton defined it, talking about how you open up <clears throat> a newspaper to an article on subject, some subject you know well. In Murray's case, Murray Gelman, that is, physics. In mine, show business. You read the article and see the journalist has absolutely no understanding of either the facts or the issues. Often the article is so wrong, it actually presents the story backwards, reversing cause and effect. I call these the wet streets cause rain stories, papers full of them. In any case, you read with exasperation or amusement the multiple errors in the story, and then you turn the page to national or international affairs, and you read the rest of the newspaper as somehow more accurate about Palestine than the baloney you just read. Turn the page, forget what you know. This is actually... Very topical because of the example that Crichton uses. But this is also very interesting because we live in an age in which more is possible. We have satellites in space that take pictures of things like hospitals, not just in Palestine, some of but them, all around the world. Some of them put there by a guy who runs a social media company now. Yep. And... Journalists have more tools than ever to make 
better, sounder judgments than ever. And it's really, really sad that in an age in which you could see if a hospital has been leveled with a click of the mouse, that you don't. Then instead, you pass along the word of, as Eric pointed out, a very dubious expert instead. Now, there are all sorts of people who have all sorts of legitimate criticisms of mainstream media. But if you think that you found the website that is going to tell you the straight scoop, you are wrong. And I'm reminded in this because this was part of the reason this got so bad was because this was amplified on social media because you had government officials, not only uh, Representative Tlaib, which we've talked about, but also we've had the Turkish prime minister. We've had heads of state in various Arab states make statements about this um, that have been counterproductive. It was just a month ago that the, uh, that the head of X, Elon Musk, uh, tweeted out, just get my news from X, much more immediate, has actual world-class subject matter experts. There are many subject experts on X. There are many people who pose as experts on X. There are many of people who have no expertise whatsoever but have an agenda, including representatives in government and this sort of thing. The best thing a person can do is wait. You see something about a hospital exploding. You don't have to tweet about it. It's not your job. Wait till the next morning. Wait till the sun comes up. See if the building is there. Another great strategy, and this is something that Dylan Palman and I have referenced on this program before. What we do is we go to Wikipedia. Because one of the wonderful things that Wikipedia does is it gives you a rundown of an event. And there is a rundown of this explosion outside of this hospital. There is a rundown of this tragic uh, bombing adjacent to this church that will tell you not only what happened, according to mainstream media reports, but will then also link you to those reports themselves and to discrepancies in those reports. Discrepancies about things like casualties that are very highly weaponized on all sides of this incident. Um, and, you know, take Lord Acton's advice. You know, when he gave that address, the, the inaugural address, his inaugural address at Cambridge, he was talking about how we are just now, and this is 1901, figuring out what caused the Franco-Prussian War back in 1870 because of government classified documents that were then recently emerging, do not invest the weight of your friendships, the weight of your civility to others based on fallible news reporting. It brings to mind the possibly apocryphal story of um, uh, Zhao Enlai uh, being asked about uh, the impact of the French Revolution, and his answer was uh, too soon to tell. Um, yeah, it, it often is, even with things that happened that long ago, kind of too soon to tell about it. I, I will make one note that I, I agree with you about Wikipedia. Uh, one of the good things that has happened on X, formerly known as Twitter, is 
the kind of arrival of the same kind of curation community that exists in the form of these community notes that get attached to tweets that contain misleading or incorrect information. I will give credit to Elon Musk and the platform there. They have gotten a lot better about Community that. notes debuted before Musk's acquisition. There you go. So I can't even credit it to Elon Musk, and I should, I should, I should trust in the piece that I once wrote about how Elon Musk wasn't going to make Twitter any better, but he probably wasn't going to make it any worse either. I want to move on to our final story, which, as I mentioned, is about Ozempic. And this, if uh, you're not familiar with it, it is a drug that was developed to treat diabetes, but has gained a lot of attention now as a incredible weight loss drug that will allow people to lose a lot of weight in a short time frame. Of course, there are side effects that come along with all of this, but Dan, this was something that caught your attention. What about it caught your attention? So the first, I mean, this has been an amazing story. It has been an amazing story on a couple of fronts. One is that we seem to actually have a drug treatment for obesity which is not only an endemic worldwide health problem, but is uh, also tied into psychology and addiction. We've had other breakthroughs in drug-related treatments to addiction, like, uh, you know, uh, we have smoking cessation drugs now that seek to reduce cravings. And this seems to operate on the same level, as this actually reduces sensations of hunger, which prompts people to eat and, in many cases, overeat. Um, so it's remarkable in that that we're seeing like wide-scale deployment of this. It's also a remarkable business story because Novo Nordisk, who developed this, is single-handedly responsible for lifting the Danish economy out of recession. Literally, last quarter's numbers, without the revenue generated by Novo Nordisk, which was overwhelmingly driven in the last quarter by the development of this drug, um, you know, we, we have a growing Danish economy instead of a stagnating Danish economy as a result of this. Um, the occasion for us talking about this in this podcast was a story in The Print, which is an Indian magazine talking about interest in India, exploding in this drug. India is a place that has an obesity and diabetes epidemic. Um, it is, you know, lags behind the United States in calories consumed, but they're still very large uh, and, and, and increasingly prevalent obesity, even in the developing world, even in places where, you know, we typically think about as centers of hunger are actually now centers of overeating in many cases. And what do we do with this sort of food abundance that prosperity generates? Um, this is a challenge. And this is a challenge that there is now a sort of technological response to. There have been sort of psychological responses. There have been uh, all sorts of, of government responses in terms of healthy eating, food guidelines, those sorts of things. But this is the first sort of wide-scale technological medical intervention um, that I think is uh, extremely positive for folks around the world, although uh, it, it, it has its own challenges that I'm sure we'll get into. So uh, I have a lot that this made me think about. So first of all, 
the article is very worth reading that Dan mentioned. And we will put it in the show um, notes. What's interesting to me is it's not there half of it is people wanting to have a particular body, right? They it's a self-image thing. They want to look thin, right? Uh, now there's real health concerns. Obesity is a health issue. It's not just a, a matter of aesthetics and and how do you look and all of that. Um, so it is something that that people should care about in general. Um, but what it was interesting to me was how much people were willing to put up with the cost of the drug and the the side effects, some of which are minor, but some of which can be pretty serious, um, in order to have it get rid of hunger. So hunger to them, just economically speaking, uh, was more costly, was was harder for them to deal with. They would prefer all of these other things, uh, including this huge hit to their pocketbook, to just dealing with hunger. Um, I don't think people should fast to lose weight or to try to obtain a certain body image. But one of the important primary objectives of fasting is to teach you to control hunger and not be governed by it. And I would argue that the people who are running to Ozempic because they cannot deal with their hunger are still enslaved by it. Um, it... You know, it, it's the sort of thing like you could invent a pill to give worms to ex-girlfriends or you could just get over your ex-girlfriend, yeah. right? Um, now, I don't want to be so glib. I realize it is difficult. It is, you know, food can become an addiction for people. Um, poor diet um, factors into this hugely. Um, but we know things like diet and exercise they work. They, I mean, it, it's it's hard work, but they work if people will actually put in the effort. Uh, India is a country with a long ascetic tradition. Um, people ought to tap back into that. Uh, it would help. It, it really would. Um, and then the last thing is I think people, the self-image side is really, really important that people in general... Um, and I, I realize saying this as a man who is uh, six foot four and like 160 pounds because I have the metabolism of a squirrel. Um, but for me, that tells me that like there's a lot of people that don't choose to be 250 pounds, right? They, there's a metabolism issue there. And people need to be happy with healthy rather than some image of a supermodel or an athlete or an actress or whatever, that that's who they want to be. No, God made you who you are, and he gave you the metabolism you have. He also gave you uh, uh, free will, and you need to strengthen that will and learn self-control, hopefully by his grace. I would advocate praying along with fasting. Um, but you need, you need to work on yourself. Um, people need to be happier with themselves and have more self-control. Um, and so I don't mean to be insensitive, but I mean, this is the vice of gluttony. I mean, this is by definition, this is what it is. I'm not trying to blame people. I, again, I know it's more complicated. I know there's, there is real addictive factors that get into this. Um, so if there's a drug that helps people get beyond that and then gain the self-control, then fine. But the way in which this article talked about a Zempic, they said it could be a lifetime, yeah. uh, prescription, Every week, an injection. Uh, I believe it was twenty thousand rubles per injection, something like rupees. that. Rupees. Uh, rupees. Sorry, uh, I knew the R stood for something. Uh, yeah, rupees. I got to think Zelda, not uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, but that that is something that 
that does not sound like a solution to me. And now, all else being equal, maybe people are healthier if they're taking this compared to being morbidly obese. Okay. So I'm not going to say there's no good there. Um, but I don't think we, people should be happy or satisfied with this. I think we should want a lot more for people. And I think people should be able to see themselves uh, getting beyond this. They should have a better picture of what can be their life. Um, and it really can be their life. Uh, it does take work, but find someone who can help you. Find a coach, a spiritual guide, find a community of people um, who are taking steps to live a healthier lifestyle, both spiritually and physically, and it will make a difference. I am skeptical of what seems to be the weight loss version of like a get rich quick scheme that like with this one simple trick, you can fix all of these problems. And it, it, I am in a way because at the end of last year, the end of 2022, I went in for my regular physical blood work and all of that. And the uh, email I got from my doctor with the results of my blood work, uh, the first sentence of it was, there's a lot going on here, which is not what you typically want in an email from your doctor. But, you know, I, I had I was not living in a particularly healthy way. I could make better choices. I chose not to make better choices. I could be more active. I had chosen not to be more active. So because of that, uh, made changes. And I started eating healthier and going to the gym three times a week, uh, drinking less, not drinking at home. And within a few months, I'd lost 20 some pounds, um, feel better, feel healthier. I like my gym days. Today is a gym day for me. So I usually feel better on my gym days. That kind of self-discipline that comes along with it is good, not just for the effects that it has on you. It is kind of a good in and of itself to be able to develop that kind of self-discipline. So there are certainly people, like nobody would have accused me at this time last year of being obese. Um, I was overweight for my height and body type. But there are certainly people for whom this is probably, and, and being, again, we should note, being used off-label you know, this is a drug to treat diabetes. It helps regulate blood glucose. Being used off-label as a weight loss drug for whom that makes a lot of sense, who otherwise would be 300, 400, 500 pounds. Anybody like my wife who watches those you know, uh, TV shows about you know, people who are morbidly obese and working to lose that much weight through a combination of diet, exercise, and then some kind of surgery usually uh, attached to it as well. It, it's good, and I'm glad it exists for those people. I get concerned about the overuse of the, you know, very easy solution to these things that isn't going to imbue them with any sense of self-discipline, that it's going to take the easy road to get you to the results that you want. And as a result, if, as it's noted in these stories, I'll put a story for the New York Times in the show notes as well. Um, and as you noted, you have to stay on this for your entire life. Now, there are a lot of people who take different kinds of medication their entire life. But an injection once a week at no small cost, even with the recognition that the cost is likely going to come down over time, is a major commitment. And for people who have gotten off of it, so they gave back 
most if not all of the weight within a couple of months, which really to me highlights just how tenuous of a solution this is. This isn't a solution. It is a treatment. And I think we should regard it in that space and it should be coupled with, and this is one of the reasons why while I was never, uh, uh, those shows that my wife would watch never appealed to me in the same way that they interested her, one of the things I always liked about them is before they can go in and get lap band or some kind of surgery like that, they have to have a demonstrated record of, you know, eating better, losing weight, exercising, doing things that make a life pattern that is going to make the results of the surgery sustainable for those people. I worry about things that come across as like a get-rich-quick scheme. And again, I think this is a remarkable development, very happy for the Danish economy, but I am also concerned that people will not treat it with the seriousness that is going to be necessary for their sustained health throughout life. The flesh is weak, and we can fix that. What we are looking at here is, I think, analogous to what you have with Chantex in smoking. You know, this is something that, you know, I am someone that, that quit smoking after smoking for many, many years. What's very interesting is I did it first with Chantex, and then I relapsed because you stopped taking Chantex. And then, oh, you know, you start smoking again, whatever. Quit again. Quit for good without Chantex. What this is is another tool in the toolbox. Just like you have to take <clears throat> this drug every day for the rest of your life, you're going to have to watch what you eat and exercise for the rest of your life. And what this is, I think, is, is an excellent alternative to something like an invasive surgery. And this is an excellent thing to show people that a different life is possible. Now, that life is going to take work. There's no way around that. Um, uh, you know, the, and, and, and the way we fix the weakness of the flesh is never strictly biochemically. But there is also a psychological, a spiritual, and indeed a, a root physical and it has to do with activity. It has to do with all sorts of things that exercise does for your life. But I think it's encouraging on that. Sure. Yeah. I just think people who take Chantix, the whole point is to not smoke or have to take Chantix again. <laughs> right? If the whole point of Ozempic is I will take Ozempic the rest of my life, I think we can build about a mousetrap at the very least. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Acton Unwind, or you can just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. <laughs>